It's that time again. It's ASGCA Insights, the official podcast of the American Society of Golf Course Architects. And now, from our studios in beautiful Brookfield, Wisconsin, it's your host, Mark Whitney. Welcome to ASGCA Insights. My guest today is a man whose name and work is recognizable to many golf fans and to those who simply appreciate great writing, Michael Bamberger. A graduate of the University of Pennsylvania, Michael has written for newspapers and magazines, including the Philadelphia Inquirer, Sports Illustrated, and Golf Magazine, and written a half dozen books about golf and other subjects. He was also the 2016 recipient of the ASGCA Donald Ross Award. Michael, welcome to the program. Probably the single greatest day of my life. I mean, there's the day you get married, the birth of your children, and then the day you become an honorary member of the American Society of Golf Course Architects and are awarded the Donald Ross Award. And uh, I think I got a bobblehead doll, a Trent Jones bobblehead doll. Does that sound correct, Mark? That is absolutely correct. I think think that was as impressive to you as the plaque was. Where... Now, do you take that home, or do you just get to hold on to it for the day? Uh, well, I, I'm surprised you don't have it on your shelf right now. And that's why I'm, that's my shock right now. How could I not have it on my anyway? It was a great occasion. It's a great organization, and Mark, it's great to be with you. Thank you, uh, Michael. There's a lot that I hope to cover in our time together today. I was not expecting a, a the, the the Jones bobblehead to be part of it. Um, I'd like to start with there something. There will be you... diversions. <laughs> Apparently. Uh, I want to start with something you wrote in March when we were all just beginning to feel the impact of, of COVID-19. I you don't wrote, remember a month called March. Was there a March? <laughs> uh, it's a blur at this point. Oof. All right. Lay it on me. Humans are hardwired for optimism and yeah. golfers especially so. Optimism tempered by realism. If the conditions are safe, we'll go for it. We'll hit that six iron out of the woods despite the tree trunk right in front of us. Optimism tempered by realism. Is that is that how you've sort of seen the world through the lens of golf this spring? Man, Mark, did you write that? <laughs> no, I just picked it up off the web somewhere. Woof. Man, that web's got some good stuff on it. Yes, optimism tempered by realism is the hallmark of golf. It's the hallmark of scientific research. Um, you know, you have to have a plan uh, for what you think you can achieve. If it's completely unachievable, man on the moon is doable. Man on sun is not. So, I mean, you know, there's there's always a range uh, in these things. And uh, so you have to have a goal that's uh, both optimistic uh, and realistic. I mean, who would want to be on the sun? That wouldn't even be a, a worthy goal. Uh, but being on the moon, that's pretty cool. And to bring a, what did he bring? What, what did what did they bring with it? What, what was it? Alan Shepard, I guess, for a a five iron or some correct <laughs> anyway yes that is my that is my that is i think one of the broad attractions to our game is uh is how it blends optimism with realism before we started recording here i mentioned to you that one of the things that that impressed me about a, a lot of your writing over the years has been uh your interactions and your descriptions of the people that you've met along the way here through the golf industry uh, one of the many books that you've authored is is Men in Green, and it's a wonderful book, and, and not simply because the cover photo features two ASGCA members, Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer, uh, but for those who aren't familiar with the book, can you describe the premise, and then I'd like to ask you about a couple of specific topics that you wrote about. Sure. Um, 
Mark, who, who are the two people on the cover of the book? Uh, Nicholas and Palmer, I believe, were their names. Mark, where, where, <laughs> Mark, where did you grow up? I grew up in Chicago. Uh, you got to love a pronunciation of someone who actually puts the L in Palmer. Yeah, you don't hear that all the time. Um, the uh, okay, so you you want to know about the premise of the book? The premise of the book steals directly from a landmark uh, sports writing book called uh, The Boys of Summer. The Boys of Summer is a book that Roger Kahn wrote about uh, the Brooklyn Dodgers, which he, the Pee Wee Reese, Gil Hodges, Jackie Robinson, probably should have said that name first, uh, Brooklyn Dodgers, whom he covered as a young man and then was enamored with everything that they did and what they stood for, and then caught up with these people years later and wrote a book about it. I came a golf age in the 70s, Trevino, Nicholas, Palmer hanging around, Crenshaw coming up, you know the whole scene, and uh, and then tried to uh, catch up with these people later and find out uh, uh, what they were doing with their lives, what they thought about what they had done with their lives, and and that sort of thing. And that was that was five years ago. Uh, just as a very quick side note, Mark, because you may not know about it, but I've written another book that it's not a, you know, it's just a different kind of book, but I wrote a book about, uh, but it deals as Men in Green deals with Augusta quite a bit. This book does as well. Wrote another book about, uh, about Tiger's comeback called The Second Life of Tiger Woods. And there's some parallels there because there's a lot of Nicholas and a lot of Palmer in telling uh, the Tiger Woods story. But anyway, so Men in Green, really borrows uh, or takes its inspiration from uh, the Boys of Summer, Roger Kahn classic, uh, and applies it to golf, golf, golfers from the 70s. And the first topic I want to ask you about doesn't have to do with a specific person, uh, but it has to do with something that's very important to the game, uh, specifically to the game of golf, and that's the rules of the game. Uh, I'm going to, to throw your words back at you again here ever so briefly. Um, every legend on my list, even if he or she has never read the rules of golf, understands the wisdom of this passage from the first page. And this is from the rules of golf itself. Golf is played for the most part without the supervision of a referee or umpire. The game relies on the integrity of the individual to show consideration for the other players and to abide by the rules. All players should conduct themselves in a disciplined manner demonstrating courtesy and sportsmanship at all times, irrespective of how competitive they may be. This is the spirit of the game of golf. So my two questions are, why was it important for you to include this paragraph within your book? And how important is the execution of those rules in terms of what sets off the game of golf and those who play it from other sports? You know, I love those sentences that you uh, just read. And I, and I wish I knew who wrote them for the USGA. Um, they were the preamble to the rules of golf for decades. And they don't, th those sentences I don't believe exist in the current rule book, but those sentences are the whole spirit of, of the current rule book. You, you get this even from extremely sophisticated golf people like Tiger Woods. They want to say, well, in basketball people, don't call in their penalties. Why should you be allowed to do it in golf? Because golf works on a completely different system and it's misunderstood. People think golf only works because it's a game of honor. Golf is a game of honor. That is a necessary starting point to understand golf, but it is also a sport in which 
big brother is watching and we call penalties on, on ourselves and we call penalties on others as well. By watching others, you have even more of an incentive as if you need it, you don't, but it's there just in case. Uh, and that's why it's so, that's why it's so effective uh, that, that's, that another person will call uh, a penalty on you. So it's a two tiered approach to making, to putting everybody on the same page. And by having everybody on the same page, which is strict, complete adherence to the rules of golf, it creates a level, fair playing field. And that's what we'd like to see in society at large and in, in, in every walk of life. It's not really achievable um, in real life. We would like it to be, but it's not. It's almost achievable and, and in theory should be achievable uh, in golf. So uh, a long-winded answer to saying that it's the necessary starting point and it informs everything about serious competitive golf. Now, Mark, if you and I go out for a game of golf and we play each other, we might have a serious competition, but we are going to make up our own rules. And we're going to, but we're going to do it with a tacit and, well, both express and, and implied contract between the two of us. And, I, and I'm going to say, well, Mark, I was over that ball and it was sitting on a tuft of grass. And it fell off that tufter grass while I was hitting it. So I was hit. So I hit a ball that moved. And you're going to say, "Oh, who cares?" Well, that's fine because that's in the spirit of us creating own rules. But it's still in the spirit of openness. I'm not trying to get away with it. And by the way, you could say, "Well, that's a shot," or "That's automatic loss of hole," whatever it might be. Right. And 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 that would be okay too. But anyway, that's a spirit that golf has that you don't see in other sports. My guess is Michael Bamberger. Michael, the Harmon name is one that golf fans are quite familiar with. Uh, Butch Harmon has coached for decades, including his time with Tiger Woods. Uh, but you wrote in Men in Green about another member of the Harmon family that folks may not know as well, and that's Billy Harmon. Yes, there were, there were six Harmon kids, two, two girls and four boys. The four boys are all teaching pros and club pros. Uh, uh, Dick Harmon, who taught Lucas Glover, uh, tragically died some years ago. Uh, Billy is the youngest of the four and uh, has an elfin spirit, was the head professional at Newport, now teaches um, in Palm Springs uh, in the California desert. Uh, and uh, he caddied for Jay Haas for years. He's known, of course, he, his father was a master's winner. He knows Bob Golby well. Uh, he knows everybody in the game well. And uh, he's one of the best storytellers of all time and uh, just a tremendous uh, uh, spirit. You mentioned his caddy experience on a previous uh, ASGCA Insights podcast. We had a conversation with journalist and writer Brad Klein. Uh, like you, Brad also spent time as a PGA Tour caddy. What do you think it is that draws people like Brad or yourself who are creative and certainly have a love of the game uh, to the world of golf caddies? Uh, uh, Brad and uh, uh, we, Brad and I have a friend, Neil Oxman. Uh, who uh, these days or in recent years has caddied for uh, Tom Watson since the, the uh, tragic death of, uh, of Bruce Edwards and in his quote real life, uh, Neil was a, uh, a is a political consultant um, here in Philadelphia um, uh, where I live. Uh, many people have done uh, what I've done over the years, which is uh, caddy, uh, you know, sometimes at the highest levels of the game. 
because uh, how else is a 90 shooter going to get uh, to understand what it's really like to be uh, an elite golfer, uh, except for to uh, to caddy for that person. So uh, I caddy, you know, a lot of these things have been one week or one day stints, uh, but I caddied for Betsy King. I've caddied for Al Geiberger, George Archer, Steve uh, Elkington, uh, Brad Faxon, Billy Britton, Mike Donald, um, uh, uh, various others, Peter Taravainen in Europe. And uh, those experiences, even though they're now uh, years and years ago, uh, caddied in a, uh, in a Masters one year for the British Amateur uh, at the time, Stuart Wilson. Uh, we got paired with Tom Watson and Jim Furyk, which means for me as a caddy, being paired with uh, Mike Cowan, Fluff, and, and Neil Oxman, caddying for uh, for Watson. But the point is that um, uh, for me, those events, uh, you know, happened year, th- those caddying experiences were years ago, but they've enriched my understanding of the game in a way that nothing else could. And I know it's helped my writing in in every uh, possible way, and it's and it's just uh, it's just so much fun to be that close to golfing excellence. As a result, do you now watch tournaments differently, either whether you're covering it or whether you're simply watching it on, on television? Uh, do you consider what the conversations are that are taking place in the middle of a fairway or, you know, just off a green in terms of in terms of whether it's advice or just being a counselor or simply being a sounding board or in some cases a caddy just simply being quiet and letting the player play? I feel like I've got some insight into into those uh, conversations and what that relationship is like, and that's very useful. But uh, so that's a good question, Mark. But I would say the deepest thing is uh, is more ephemeral than uh, than that. I'm not sure I'm using the word ephemeral correctly or appropriately there, but uh, um, but what it, I think what it's given more than anything is an empathy for the player, and that golf is extremely difficult. And for Tom Watson to be uh, over the green on the 72nd hole at Turnberry, and now he's got a fluffy lie, kind of a you know uh, trying to trying to win the British Open uh, Open Championship at age 59. Uh, you know, people say you know he he whiffed the chip and hacked you know and and and, and shoved the putt. Well, you could say that. You also say that anybody could say could say what I'm about to say that it is so hard to get that ball up and down, even though he's going to get that ball up and down in his prime. But the point is that I think by being inside, I've seen how extremely difficult it is on a really intimate level. Anyone can see it from the ropes, from watching on TV, from the grandstand. But to be inside 10 feet from the players, he's trying to get it done while he's trying to make a cut, you know, and trying to make a cut is about as hard as trying to win a tournament in ways, um, especially, uh, well, it just is. Uh, I think it's just increased my level of empathy for the difficulty of playing professional golf in any high-level golf. It's a- Paraphrase the, the one of one of Lee Trevino's many stories. Uh, the the real pressure is uh, having a five dollar putt when you have two dollars in your pocket. Right. Well said. Uh, one of the things that, that you mentioned in Men in Green, you you quoted a uh, uh, Jack Nicholas saying that uh, uh, Jack Nicholas likes to say you could not enjoy being whoever you are more than Arnold Palmer enjoys being Arnold Palmer. Uh, you had a chance to visit Mr. Palmer at his home and office in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. What were you expecting going into that visit, and did the visit match your expectations? Well, I, I should say that I've I've seen Arnold a lot. Over, I have I had the opportunity to see Arnold quite a bit over the years, only because you know I was I was a reporter for 
uh, Sports Illustrated, now Golf Golf Magazine. So I saw Arnold in Latrobe on a number of occasions. I saw him in, at Bay Hill on a number of occasions. I saw him uh, at a, a place out west in the California desert called The Tradition, where he had a casita. I think I was only there once. Um, so I never, I, I, I never just had, I, I don't have one isolated experience uh, with Arnold. I, I have a whole series of them. Um, but just to answer your question more, more broadly, I had something with Arnold that I've had very seldom, which is you're in a room with Arnold Palmer. His face is so famous. It's such an iconic face. You know, the silver hair, the big broad forehead, the strong uh, arms and and the, the meaty hand. And when he shook hands with you, you were aware of it. I remember on one occasion, I was casually leaning my right forearm on his door of his big cataclysmalade, and he took his right hand and he put it on my forearm. So in other words, some people, very few have this physical presence by which they don't even need to say a thing. It's already exciting just to be in their presence. And so I don't think of Arnold Palmer as a god or a great man, but I think he... I think he was a really interesting, charismatic man. He was fantastic for golf, and he lifted people's spirits just by being himself. And that's a lot. I don't know what more you could really, you could really, really want. But I would say it was an electrifying experience being with Arnold Palmer. You never could really just sort of completely be yourself with Arnold Palmer because he was Arnold Palmer. Uh, and the, I've had, a, you know, I've had great experiences with other. Uh, uh, great golfers and other athletes and other uh, celebrated people uh, from different walks of life. But Arnold is sort of uh, in a class unto himself. And as a player and something that, that, that folks today may not recognize because they didn't see him in his prime, he changed the game in the, in, in the attacking style that he had uh, folks didn't think was, was set up for the uh, four days of, of golf uh, for a tournament as opposed to the style that he had, which seemed to be more uh, apropos for match play at the time, was it? Well, I, I wrote about this for Golf Magazine. Uh, in, I think it's our next month's issue, is our June issue, and it, and it looks back at the 1960 uh, U.S. Open, um, which, of course, is now 60 years ago. And, uh, and everyone knows, everyone who follows golf closely would know how Arnold drove the first screen in the last round and went on shot 65 and went over Hogan and Nicholas and, uh, you know, considered one of the great U.S. Opens of all time uh, at Cherry Hills in, in Denver. And, uh, and yes, I would agree with what you just said. He created an attacking style of golf that we see, to, you know, a B, Tiger played it, Phil played it, B.J. Singh played it. Uh, and... You know, another style of golf, the Steve Elkington, Larry Mize, uh, uh, Scott Simpson, Andy North uh, method, uh, uh, that worked for a long while, but that's not the game today. And Arnold was sort of, um, I guess you would say he was, he was the first really prominent world-class multiple major winner to play that style of really brash golf, hit it hard and hit it far and deal with the lie that, that you get. Now he drove it great. People don't necessarily know that, but if you drove it crooked, you know, he had the strength to play shots out of the rough and, and uh, around trees and, uh, and had the fearlessness uh, uh, to do it. 
Uh, and so he did create a new style of golf that, that turned off uh, Ben Hogan. Um, it wasn't Hogan's method at all, but uh, it worked for Arnold. And it's part of what made Arnold Arnold, to say the least. I want to make sure and ask you a, a couple of thoughts on your, your views on the, on the business and the art of architecture as well. Uh, you've uh, obviously seen the great courses of the world. You've also seen municipal courses as well. Do you, how do you recognize, how do you view uh, the, the role that, that architects continue to play uh, in the game and the continued evolution of the game here as, as we move along? Yeah, you know, I had a wonderful experience in March. This, in fact, was uh, uh, just when the COVID thing was really uh, starting to hit home. It was on the Monday of Players, the Players Championship. Uh, and uh, I was I woke up that morning in West Palm, and it was a really blowy day. And for some years, uh, Reese Jones uh, is a great friend of mine and known to many people listening to this podcast. And just a spectacular human being. He enjoys the membership at Seminole, and I played uh, Seminole with him a number of times. And that's a very special experience, to say the least. But there's a public golf course down the street from Seminole, uh, the North Palm Beach Municipal Golf Course, that I happen to love. It's a Jack Nicholas uh, design. And uh, and anyway, and and I've been trying to get Reese to come there and join me for a game. So he did. Uh, so he did on that Monday, and to play any course with Reese Jones or Tom Doak with whom I played or Gil Hans with whom I played or to talk about golf course architecture with uh, Ben Crenshaw or, or, uh, or Bill Coor or any number of other people, uh, Nicholas and Palmer, uh, uh, certainly among them is to deepen your appreciation for the game, um, in a way that, uh, that nobody else can. So, so things that happened that day with, with Reese is like, he, uh, I hit a good shot that rolled down through a fairway. Uh, it was kind of a windblown shot. Uh, and this trickle, trickle, trickled it into a pond. And I wondered why there wasn't, you know, some rough to stop the ball from doing that. And Reese explained how you could have rough there and you probably should have rough there, but they didn't have rough there because they wanted to get water off the fairway and into the pond. And if you had rough there, it would slow down the, the, the drainage process. Well, I've been playing golf, you know, 40 plus years, I guess now. And uh, let me think if that's right. Oh, well over 40, so 45 years. And uh, that never had occurred to me. I mean, I never even thought about it. So the to speak of the role of the architect in the game, we could be here for the rest of the day. The architect is the game. The game doesn't exist without the course, and the course doesn't exist without the architect. In terms of our appreciation and our understanding of this game that so many of us love, to have the opportunity to play with an architect, not many are going to get to do that, or to read on an architect's thoughts. Well, we all can do that because architects are often writers, and there's a vast literature of architects uh, uh, writing about uh, golf course design is to enrich our own understanding of the golf experience. And that's why it's such a great honor for me to have been selected as uh, the winner of the Donald Ross Award from the Society in, in 2016. And Reese had a lot to do with that. Uh, and uh, and it, it's enriched uh, getting to know architects and reading architects uh, uh, has enriched my love of golf and uh, deep my love of golf um, uh, immeasurably. 
One final question uh, before I let you go here, Michael. Uh, you mentioned that you've uh, recently written a book on the uh, the comeback of Tiger Woods. Is it possible to truly measure the impact that he's had on the game of golf over the past 30 years? Well, measure, no, because that no device exists by which it can be measured. You know, people can look at TV ratings. That's a true measure. People can look at purse increases. That's a lesser measure. I think it's a measure. Um, but I, but, but the most uh, impressive thing about the impact he's had on the game is the people that he has brought to the game and the attitude those people have brought to the game. And we're seeing it. We're seeing it all the time. Um, Matthew Wolf uh, is 21 years old. Uh, you know, he, he, he won last year on tour. Uh, he's not a tour star, but he has, and, but he has the promise of becoming one. Uh, Justin Thomas, Jordan Spieth, John Rahm, uh, Patrick Reed. I mean, a whole generation of golfers, uh, Tony Finau, who have come up now and the way that you and I might think of Arnold or Jack or Seve or Crenshaw, they think of Tiger Woods that way times 10. Because when they were when, when I was coming up in the game, there were lots of different players to choose from who were going to serve as your inspiration. For that generation that, you know, Rory McIlroy, age 30, I believe, and younger, they don't know, they don't, all they know is the Tiger era because they grew up on the Tiger era. Um, I was amazed to realize that when, when Rory was at the Masters last year, when Tiger won his 15th major championship and his fifth green jacket, that was the first major of Tiger, Tiger winning major. That was the first time Tiger won a major where Rory was even on campus. You know, it so happens I've been there for 14 of the 15 of them. So it just shows you that, you know, how time marches on. And, uh, you know, there's a whole generation that worships Hogan and Palmer and Nicholas and Watson. Well, there's a new generation coming up and their devotion to Tiger is at a level that can't be measured to, to, to address the question that you asked, but it's at the deepest possible level. And what, and now here's another thing that can't be measured. People are watching this documentary uh, in enormous numbers about Michael Jordan because he redefined basketball. Basketball's existed for a long time and will exist for a long time after Michael Jordan, uh, as we've seen. But Michael Jordan reshaped basketball and redefined basketball. Uh, well, Tiger Woods, the same thing. Tiger Woods winning a U.S. Open by 15 and a Masters by 12 and practicing the way he did and being so devoted to fitness and to, and to understanding a golf course and uh, preparing for a tournament. Uh, it was at a level that really golf probably had never seen before. So how do you measure that impact? I don't think you can, but you can write it, you can write about it, which I've tried to do, and you can appreciate it, which millions of us uh, uh, try to do and do do. And as you mentioned, uh, bringing people to the game, and you mentioned Justin and Rory and Jordan and, and, and the rest. Uh, I also think of the, the people that you saw on that municipal course when you played with Reese Jones last month and the, the number of folks that play public courses and just play the game sporadically simply because of, of what they've seen from him. Yeah, that's right. And you can't go to a public course. You can't go anywhere in golf. You can't get on a plane ride. You can't ride a plane 
And, uh, and if the conversation turns to golf, it's only going to be a few minutes until Tiger Woods comes up in the conversation. My guest has been author and journalist, Michael Bamberger. Michael, thank you so much for your time. Mark, thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. And uh, it's an honor to be affiliated with the, uh, with the American Society of Golf Course Architects. So thank you for this privilege. That wraps up another ASGCA Insights. I'm Mark Whitney. You can always find past episodes of this podcast and more information about golf course architecture at ASGCA.org. Thank you for listening. And until next time, so long.